how can we put carbon back into the earth, save water, regenerate soil, and rebuild ecosystems just by changing the way we eat? In this episode of the Superheroes podcast, I chat to Andrew Oddington, founder and CEO of Regen Ag South Africa, to talk about how eating foods farmed using regenerative agriculture is the key to making South Africa rich. And we are live. This is the Supper Heroes podcast number four, and we have a very special guest, Andrew Oddington, joining us today. Now, little introduction. How's it, Andrew? Firstly, you can say hello. How's it, How's it going? How's it, man? A little introduction. Uh, Andrew studied um, agricultural economics, if I'm correct. Agricultural economics, yeah. And then you became a game ranger, and now you're a builder. But you're also the emperor and CEO and founder of regenerative agriculture uh, South Africa, the regenagsa.org. Is that tell us? Tell us like just one minute of how you made that transition. Um, well, I grew up on a farm, and um, and then I was a game ranger, and then I ran a lodge in a wilderness area. Um, and then I came to Cape Town um, and I moved away from farming. Uh, but I have a, a very regenerative focused uncle who's a farmer. Uh, he's retired now though. And, um, and he kept me in the game um, during my year off. And then um, I, I, three and a half years ago, um, my, together with my sisters and my mother, we bought a small holding and we got some cattle and that got the regenerative juices flowing again. Um, and, um, I just, everywhere I looked and all the research I did, uh, regenerative agriculture came back a win, win, win on so many of the major issues in, uh, in our country uh, and in the world, uh, you know, whether it was human health and, you know, skyrocketing chronic diseases, uh, whether it was environmental health. Um, and specifically the focus on too much carbon in the atmosphere rather than in the soil. Mm. Um, and regenerative agriculture just ticked all these boxes. And what I wanted to do was what could I do that's best for promoting regenerative agriculture in South Africa? You know, if I just went and sold my house in Cape Town and bought a farm um, and got farming, I could change that farm, but I wasn't going to, in a short space of time, change lots. Mm. And I started doing research and I found out there were more regenerative farmers in South Africa than I thought um, of a kind, you know, many different kinds of regenerative farmers. And um, I, I thought that the best thing I could do was create a community for these people, for them to communicate with each other, to share their problems, their successes, um, and then also to to allow easy access for new entrants into the game. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy, I'm like thinking of doing this, but I think I'm all by myself, but little do I know, like 20 Ks away, there's another farmer who's already been doing this for five years. Yeah. Um, and if I can meet him, I can take some massive shortcuts and I can, you know, have a, have a beer with somebody who can share their issues with me rather than, you know, most farmers, their only exposure is to the guy selling them chemicals and fertilizer. Um, and that's the guy who, you know, he does not want you. He does not want you to go into regenerative agriculture. Yeah. Create another channel so guys have someone to talk to. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so that was how the whole thing came about. Um, and then we, you know, I I discovered something on Facebook called groups, um, which I didn't know about, because uh, I met all these guys working around soil and carbon and regenerative agriculture on Facebook through groups. So I started a group and it's great. We've now got like 700 South Africans on a group talking to each other about regenerative agriculture. Um, And uh, and that's really what what we're trying to do. And we're taking it from there. And then um, I've also... also, um, Sorry, you wanted to say something? I have like a thousand questions. So so if... Carry on, and then, uh, and then I'll, I'll, just, I'll just like finish my, my journey. So then I, I also met these, these other guys um, who have been working behind the scenes in regenerative agriculture. They are agronomists and academics, and they were in the process of forming an entity called Integra 
food with integrity. Um, and um, I, I started to work closely with them and become aligned with them in specifically in one aspect, uh, Integrity Link, which is their farm outreach component. Um, and so that is really developing um, at a deeper level with actual scientists being available um, to work with farmers, agronomists, uh, and also starting a fund to help people pay for the transition from regenerative agriculture, I mean, from conventional agriculture through to regenerative agriculture. Um, and then and developing a concept called the I-score, which is a measure of how regenerative a farm is. Uh, and this is the first one of these in the world, uh, because unlike the existing uh, types of measures, they're not actually measures, they're certificates, and you get certified as being organic. And there's either you are organic or you're not organic. You can't be 99% organic. Whereas on our regenerative system, we believe that it's about getting as many farmers and as many hectares regenerative as possible because of all the positive spin-offs from that. Mm. So we don't want to say, okay, you're 99% regenerative, so you can't be in the game. Yeah, you're not in the game. You're saying you can be 5% regenerative and you're in the game. And we're going to help you move along that scale to get 95%. Um, and there's no other system of measuring agriculture that's working along those lines. All the others are an all or nothing system. Got it. Um, and then the final thing that I've part of this whole ecosystem that we're creating uh, is the food hubs uh, and creating food clubs via a food hub. So there are already a number of food clubs in South Africa, a handful of them, probably like 15 in total, 15, 20, and they're kind of operating independently, maybe connected, but they're not really connected. And it's actually quite difficult to start a food club. If you wanted to start a food club, Johnny, you'd have to go find all the farmers. You'd have to work out how they were going to get all their produce to you. Then you'd have to work out, well, how am I going to get all this information about what products I've got together? How am I going to put prices on that? And how am I going to give that to the people who I've invited to be part of my food club, my buying group, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then how am I going to manage the whole process, the admin behind it? So we've been building a website, which is basically a food club in a box. Um, and we're a few weeks away from launching that. And that's the very exciting final part of this regenerative ecosystem that we're working to put together here in South Africa. And there, yeah, I'm very privileged to have met a lot of players in a short space of time. I and mean, we're talking, all of this has happened in a year. Yeah, it's um, And there are all these people who are putting in all this work for no gain at the moment. I mean, they're doing yeah. this because they're leaving it Maybe down the line, there'll be some income. Um, but at the moment, it's they're doing it because they believe in it. And um, uh, and it's good stuff. You know, it's the kind of stuff that people can do because they believe in it. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about some of the... Yeah, let's talk about some of the beliefs. So, um, you know, that that is amazing, by the way, to have the full ecosystem. Because obviously, you need the farmers yeah. getting the skills and people wanting to buy the stuff. And, you know, that'll, they'll feed each other. But, you know, let's take a few steps back and go to why. You know what, and and I, I spent some time scouring your website, uh, which is uh -huh. here in the, in the in that little banner for anyone who wants to check it out. Um, but you've mentioned the carbon cycle, the water cycle, depleted soils, rebuilding soils. So let's talk about carbon because a lot of people think that that if you eat beef, you you are you know you're wasting a million liters of water per steak, and you know you're basically plowing a hole in the atmosphere. So so talk about regenerative agriculture and how it impacts the carbon cycle. So, the science is, is like statistics. You know, you can, there's, you know, it, it, there's lies, lies in statistics and it, you can, there's lies, lies in facts. You know? And um, you, can, you, can, you can do research in a way that you wanted to find stuff. And most of agricultural science is, is reductionist. You know, everything gets reduced to put in a box to go in a straight line. But biology doesn't work like that. Biology is a web. And biology is complex interconnections and things that are very difficult to measure. So scientists don't like it. They like mm. to do, oh, I want to do an experiment and put this chemical in and take it out and see what happens. Um, they want to treat nature like it's Lego, you know, that you can put these pieces together, then take them apart and put them together and you didn't lose anything in the process. Well, the sad reality is you lose quite a lot in the process. <laughs> um, and 
the thing behind all of this, the whole natural cycle is carbon. Mm. Um, and, you know, carbon, most people, it, it, it didn't, wasn't even discussed in farming. You know, if your scientists would measure your soils, they'd measure your nitrogen, your potassium, your phosphorus, and maybe your zinc and your boron, but probably not even that. Um, and then they would go along and tell you what you must add on your fields. Okay. Mm. But the whole thing is underpinned by carbon. Okay. Most of a plant is made up of carbon. Most of you is carbon. And where does that carbon come from? It doesn't come from the earth. We don't mine it out the earth. We mine it out the sky. Mm. Um, now, some might say that our single biggest problem, our single biggest threat to our existence right now is that there's too much carbon in the sky. So if we have a natural system that mines carbon out of the sky, let's really promote that system. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I was watching a YouTube clip the other day of a farmer in Australia, and he was saying, you know, he, he had had government scientists come in to speak to him about his farm and what he should do for the last 40 years. And until climate change became a massive thing, the word carbon had never been mentioned in a meeting on his farm ever. And there, there's new science that's been done. Some amazing people like Christine Jones um, in Australia. And she came up with this concept of the, the liquid carbon pathway. And carbon not only is the thing that makes up most of a plant, but the whole economy of a growing plant is around carbon. And carbon is taken out the atmosphere from CO2 in the process of photosynthesis. It then goes down into the plant to build the plant, but also the plant exudes it via its roots in the form of carbohydrates to buy minerals and water from the microbiome around the roots. Okay, so there's, a, there's some bacteria and some fungi there, and they've got nitrogen and they've got calcium and they've got zinc and they've got boron and they've got selenium, all these things that a plant needs to be healthy. And the money that it pays for is it exudes sugars out of its roots. Those things eat the sugars and then the plant absorbs those minerals that it needs. So is that the, that's, and that's the process when they talk about carbon sequestration, is that that's like, well. That's part of the process, yeah. So the car, that carbon is now going into the soil and some of it will be respired by those little microbes that are eating it. Um, but some of it is trapped in the soil. Um, and, um, and that's carbon sequestration. Also, you know, there are part of the plant, like the roots go into the soil, you know, grow in the soil and they're made of carbon and they die and they're now in the soil and they're slowly decomposed. This is the whole process of carbon sequestration. And, um, you know, interestingly, you talk about cattle and about how people talk about the carbon issue. If you look at the history of the, the evolution of our soils, uh, ruminants evolved about 40, 50 million years ago. Um, and they changed the carbon, the whole carbon setup, the whole carbon cycle by putting more carbon in the ground via the grasslands. Ruminants and grasslands developed side by side. Yeah. And they put more carbon in the ground than had ever been put in. A forest is an amazing store of carbon, but actually most of that carbon is stored in the plant rather than in the ground. Um, and the, 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 the grass together with the ruminants built up these massive carbon stores and made the environment that we evolved in as human beings, the grasslands that we evolved on and we changed um, over the millennia uh, to evolve into modern humans. Uh, that all happened because of grasslands and grasslands happened because of their relationship with ruminants and how they managed to change the whole carbon situation mm. um, and store massive amounts of carbon underground. You know, you look at America um, and uh, the, the prairies, you know, the middle of America, you know, the, the topsoil was meters deep there, all made by grasslands mowed by bison and elk and pronghorn antelope for millions of years. Um, and uh, those grasslands put tons and tons and tons of carbon in the soil. And really, if we want to talk about putting carbon in the air, we don't talk about cattle, let's talk about farming, like uh, plowing, tillage. Yeah. Uh, that, that is really, over the last 10,000 years, us starting off with our little Urdu plow, the little piece of wood, basically, a, a sort of modified hoe, going all the way through to these modern machines that get dragged behind these massive tractors that are more like tanks. 
Um, those, uh, there's a lot of military analogy in industrial agriculture. Uh, but th those guys have turned that soil and released all that carbon and put carbon in the sky. You know, people don't realize that. Okay, so the main problem cause of, of our atmospheric carbon issue at the moment is uh, burning fossil fuels. You know, that's yeah. putting more more stuff in the sky than we know. And also, you know, with the advent of fracking and natural gases, um, that's putting more methane in the sky than we've ever even dreamed of. But sure. like that only started after World War II. Okay. Prior to that, we had 10,000 years of agriculture. And that 10,000 years of agriculture put more carbon in the sky than up till now fossil fuels have put in the sky. That's nuts. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. Wow. So let's use that agriculture to get the carbon back down underground. Okay. And so if I understand what you're saying, basically by protecting the soil and and I think like using cover crops and various other things, you can you can you can suppress the release of 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 carbon and basically re reverse um you know carbon what is it like carbon emissions basically or yeah. offset carbon emissions trap the carbon basically cool i mean that's that that is an insane thing that no one actually knows i mean you know we spoke about investing in regenerative agriculture last week and i kind of think that maybe that was a jump too soon because this is the stuff people need to know before they even think about throwing their money into it it's like it's literally yeah. reversing climate change by doing the thing everyone thinks causes climate change. So, <laughs> so, so, so look, you know, the, 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 I'm sure we could talk about carbon for the rest of the day, but you've also said something about the water cycle. And, and I think um, I, I mentioned before we went on live that there was some ecosystem stuff around that as well. So talk to us a bit about the impact conventional agriculture has on 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 the water cycle and then what's the differences between that and regenerative agriculture okay so i mean tenants of of industrial agriculture of conventional agriculture as it's bizarrely called um are, are plowing okay which basically smashes the house in which the biology lives in the soil okay and releases a massive amount of carbon um which is not a great idea um, and organic matter is consumed in that process. And that organic matter being consumed releases the carbon and the carbon is released into the air. So if you look, your average farm, okay, you, you and I live in the Western Cape. And if you take out a drive on the N2 and you're driving through Caledon and those places, for eight months of the year, the ground is bare and facing the sun and facing the wind and facing the rain. And, you know, one thing, almost every country in the world has in common is we all have the single greatest, the, the same single greatest export. We all export more topsoil than anything else. Um, whether you're in America, Australia, or South Africa, or India, we export more topsoil than anything else. And, um, you know, this is just going on the whole time, mostly through the way we farm. Now, organic matter has a, a very which is basically carbon, okay? Organic matter, carbon have a, a very good relationship with water in soil. Uh, and the statistic is something around the region of for every 1% increase in organic matter in your soil, your soil can hold a further 70,000 liters. That's like a big giant swimming pool uh, per hectare, okay? So, and if you can, through good farming practice, take your carbon content in your soil, your organic carbon from 1% to say 4 or 5%, okay, you've now gone up four times 70,000 liters uh, on your soil. And what that means is basically every major rainfall event can get sucked into your soil and there's very little runoff and very little flooding downstream. Um, right. And the problem is, is that there are two water cycles. The, the one water cycle is the large water cycle, which includes the ocean and large evaporation and then storm clouds come over and dump on the land. The other water cycle is the small water cycle, which is mostly from transpiration, actually. You know, plants sucking water out the ground and releasing it through their leaves in the process of photosynthesis. And um, the that is what drives the small water cycle. But... If you're in Caledon and for eight months of the year, there are no plants in the soil, 
there is no small water cycle. And lo and behold, you're going to impact on the rain. Um, and as Alan Savory says, droughts do not create bare soil. Bare soil creates droughts. Mm. Um, and the impact of bare soil and not having your soil covered, uh, protected from the sun and the rain, is phenomenal. You, you can go and buy some compost at uh, the hardware store down the road and spread it out on the ground. It'll be nice and almost black and rich and full of organic matter. Leave it there for a few months and come back, it'll all be great. The sun will have killed all the organic matter. The, yeah. And it, all of that carbon would have gone from being trapped inside that organic matter into the atmosphere. Um, and, uh, and it's gone. Um, and that's how we treat our soil. We treat it like it's dirt. We don't treat it like it's a living entity that we need to feed and we need to nourish and we need to make this thing work for us uh, and do so many things, not only provide all the minerals our plants need, but keep the water in the soil and fix mm. the small water cycle and make us get more smaller incidents of rain rather than you know, infrequent massive downpours of rain, which is happening all across the world now. Mm. Um, so, so you're saying that that if you ever if you have looked after your soil properly, like the dry season might feel like the dry season on the surface, but actually under the soil, it's like it's not that dry. So, um, the Rodale Institute, which began in America in the 1960s, I think, mm. um, maybe even earlier, um, no, earlier in the 1940s, was the first organic. There's a private place that was set up to, to do organic farming when industrial agriculture was just getting going. There were a few outspoken peoples uh, across the world. So Albert Howard uh, it was a famous British um, scientist who was very against modern agriculture and very, uh, don't, throw the, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, we need this organic stuff. Um, and Rodale began this. And one of the things Rodale began is 40 years ago, they just literally just turned 40 now. They began an experiment running a conventional maize field next to a regenerative organic maize field. Okay. Um, and they've run these two fields side by side for 40 years. And every drought year in that 40 years, the regenerative field has outperformed the industrial field. Mm. The field that's not getting any nitrogen, not getting any phosphorus, not getting any potassium, not getting any of the stuff that the industrial world says we have to put on our fields has outperformed in every single drought year over 40 years. And over those 40 years, um, the, the big criticism against regenerative agriculture is that it can't compete on yield. Well, over those 40 years, it's competed on yield because of the way it outcompetes in the dry years. And one of the things with climate change is we're just getting more and more dry years. You know, we have, we now, rather than having three dry years, we have seven dry years. Um, and so we really got to work out how to farm in dry years. Yeah. I mean, there's a parallel there between, you know, like a lot of the time I've spent looking at what, what happens in the gut and, you know, um, the big argument is, 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 you know, do we take all these supplements um, you know, which to me sound like chemical fertilizer, <laughs> or do we like look after the biome and have it and have it just produce all those micronutrients and chemicals naturally? Um, because you know, if you don't have your potassium the one day, you know, then you fall apart. Whereas if you're just looking after yourself, eating natural organic matter, it's like it's almost like the the garden analogy that Sally Ann Creed gave like years ago was like, you know, your gut is exactly like the soil. So, that, I mean, is it, it, it sounds like it's exactly the same thing. Minus the water, I think people still need water. We couldn't handle a drought as well as a, as a, as a, as a soil patch could. <laughs> no, especially, I mean, you know, I think it goes back to my Lego comment earlier. Um, yeah. Modern science says, okay, we, we've, we've, we've taken the nutrition, we've edited the nutrition out of food to such a degree we need to start taking supplements, okay? Mm. But that's playing Lego, you know? It's... Food is a complex entity and there are all these amino acids and polyphenols and all these other little bits and pieces that all come together. And then, you know, like there's a, an element called selenium, okay, which we require in minuscule proportions, okay. And plants can't get that if their microbiome isn't in good shape, okay. Mm -hmm. And this is the, they're the two microbiomes. There's the plant's microbiome happening around its roots and ours happening in our gut. And both of them are very, very closely related. And I think, you know, when 
modern science has finally worked all this out. You know, the research into the human gut microbiome is like 15 years old. You know, yeah. it's really only in the last 15 years that we've started paying attention to it. Um, and this, the microbiome, uh, you know, it's the source of uh, our immune system. Uh, it produces most of our feel-good drugs. You know, we all think that the brain is what is, is impacting us. But, you know, that serotonin that makes you feel good, made in your tummy. Yeah, and made thanks to all these other dudes who live inside your tummy that are not part of you. They came into you. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're fixing all of that. And it's that same job that's going on, that, that, that microbiome that's getting the selenium out of the soil and, and giving it to the root in the... In the um, in the plant is then doing the reverse inside our, our gut. It's taking the selenium out of the plant we're eating and putting it into our system and making it available to our system. And, sure. you know, the, the problem is with, with, with the modern industrial agricultural system, we've destroyed the plant's ability to get all the nutrients it needs to take up and all the complicated biology it needs to take into itself. Uh, first step wrong okay so now you've got a plant that does less then we process it all okay and this belief that we are so clever i mean we have this god complex where we can go along and we can take these plants to pieces and we can put them back together in whatever way we want and we haven't lost anything along the way um and i mean the 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 latest craziness is 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 this fake meat you know um impossible meat impossible because it is impossible to make meat. <laughs> yeah, but that is made up of 20 different ingredients, okay? Yeah. And of those 20 ingredients, only two are natural. The other ones have already gone through some processing process before they got into that, uh, that impossible meat. Well, this um, is a fantastic. Can I, can I stop you here? Because this is a, a, like, I wanted to chat to someone about this forever. Okay. So there's, so, so there's, so look, and I have the utmost respect for a lot of the vegan movements. I'm not vegan, but I have gone off, off dairy. Um, but okay. The, this impossible burger for me is a symbol of like missing the point because I want to know like how much of the environment are you actually saving if you eat these grains sure you're not eating factory farmed beef which is already like a great step you know well done don't eat factory farmed anything in my opinion but if if these um if the ingredients that they're using in the impossible burger are not farmed regeneratively you're still contributing to the problem is that right you you know you talk of factory farming and when we talk of factory farming we think you know pigs and cows kept in horrendous conditions okay um, but a, a, a modern corn farm, a modern soy farm, is a factory farm, okay? And those two crops basically constitute all processed food. If you go look, of the 20 ingredients, 12 of them will come from those two crops. It'll be corn syrup and then this denatured this and that, and you reduce it all, it all goes back. It's all made from a corn somewhere. Yeah, it's corn, a corn oil, corn oil for, for kicks, yeah. Yeah, oil. I mean, that, 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 was the, that was the start of the bad news when we... You know, when we were told that um, animal margarine. fats were killing us, and we yeah. and, and we invented margarine, and margarine and and uh, polyunsaturated oils paid, you know, for this massive drive to take place to um, change the whole way we we ate, yeah. um, and you know that was the sort of kickoff of America's obesity problem, closely followed by Britain's. Uh, the graphs follow each other very closely as those two countries led the charge on this. Then it went to Australia. Then it came to South Africa. You know, I can well remember my mother telling my father he couldn't eat butter anymore. We had to change to margarine. Thankfully, she forgot about that after about six months, and uh, we went back to eating butter. Um, yeah. But so you were, you, were uh, talking about, you were talking about the corn and the and the and the soy. That's and all factory farm. Yeah, yeah. That's all, it's a monocrop. It's farmed with chemicals, um, the fertilizers, uh, all man-made. And that is, that is, although there isn't the animal welfare aspect of it, it's as bad as a factory farm and it's as bad for us. And the problem is you're not getting those plants that don't have their full complement of minerals and of all the little bits and pieces that make up nutrition. And then we're using those to make food from. Mm. Um, 
you know, really what we've got to do, and this is, you know, you've always been promoting this, is, is Whole Foods. You know, we've got to go back to, and I love your, you know, your supper heroes. And it's like, you're a hero because you cook your own supper. Um, and the one upside of coronavirus and lockdown is that people started cooking again, you know, because, yeah. okay, they were at home, they were with their families, uh, they had more time on their hands because they couldn't go to work, they couldn't go to gym, they couldn't do all the things they normally did that stopped them from spending time, and they started buying ingredients and cooking again, and that's, and, and, and we'll get back to that, you know, it's all fine to to be a vegetarian or a vegan or whatever and, and think you're saving the world. But if you're eating processed foods, you're not saving anything. You're just creating large medical bills for your country further down the line. Mm. And you just got to go look at the United States of America. I mean, the United States of America is the, the king of processed foods. Um, and, uh, you know, processed foods, fast foods, tomato, tomato, it's all, it's all been manufactured in a lab to maximize the sugars, maximize the fats, uh, that you know these reward pathways that make you just want to eat more and more and more and you know it reminds me of that Bob Marley song of me belly full but me hungry because yeah. you are hungry you're not getting any nutrition you know and um, so it just goes down that line um, and and that just ends up costing a lot of money you look at America now they spend like significantly more per capita on health than any other country in the world. And in the average year, they rank 17th in world health stats. Yeah, I mean, okay. we were we we were rated the worst. The, South Africa was rated the, the unhealthiest country in the world. Well, look, and it's obviously it's it's not just chronic health. So we have obviously yeah. a massive HIV problem. But 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 like on their grading on the World Health Organization, I think their grading system we were the we were the number one. So it's a it's yeah. super relevant here. Well, as well. If, you, if you look at us, okay. Um, it, we, we should be pretty bad because, uh, you know, we have, we have allowed as a country and a government for the, our staple crop maize, okay, which is the staple backbone of the diet for the majority of South Africans. Mm. We have allowed that to become a totally GMO crop. We have a lot, which, you know, if you think, if you look at GMO, it's really just about protecting the industrial industry. What are the changes that they made? to these plants. They didn't make them more nutritious. They didn't make them do wonderful things for us. They made them resistant to their own sprays, to their own chemicals, so that you could put more of their chemicals on to these plants and they wouldn't die and the weeds would die. Because you had to put more chemicals on because the weeds are becoming resistant to those sprays after years and years of being sprayed by these things. Mm. So. We have allowed the entire maize industry in South Africa, 95 plus percent of it, to become a GMO industry with all the associated chemicals. And from a regenerative perspective, those plants are not getting all the nutrients they need. So how can the humans who eat those plants, even if they eat them in a whole form, get all the nutrients they need? And they're not eating them in the whole form. They're being processed and turned into refined maize. Um, so half the nutrients are being left behind on the pavement anyway. Um, and uh, it, it really is a serious problem in this country. No, it is. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's a large portion of what Real Mule Revolution was trying to address. And and so just back on to the, the maize thing. So we, before we went live, you were talking about the states. And I see that one of the topics on your site is grain-fed versus grass-fed. And you threw out some crazy stats about how much grain we grow for for beef. Do you want to touch on that? <laughs> well, you know, the whole thing about industrial agriculture is that is, is for years they've always came back at any arguments against them by the organic movements, by regenerative people more recently, that your, th your farming can't feed the world. But the reality is their farming doesn't feed the world. If you look at the UN stats, 70% um, of the people of the world are fed off non-industrialized uh, farming. That's China, India, South America, Africa. There's very little industrialized farming in those areas. And they, those small farms there that are still using old-fashioned methods of farming um, and could really benefit so greatly from getting the modern science around uh, regenerative farming added to those old-fashioned um, knowledge bases. Um, they're feeding 70% of the world. Now, you, so that leaves us industrial agriculture that claims it has to poison the world in order to feed it, um, is only feeding 30% of the world. 
So then if you take that and you go to study the American system, that basically their two big crops are corn and soy. But if you look at corn, 33% of the crop every year goes into producing ethanol. So we now use petrol, lots of it, to grow a maize crop. We then harvest that maize crop and losing energy all the way along the way, make it into petrol to put in our cars. I mean, it really is is unbelievable. Um, it's, it's, it's boggles the mind. Why okay, do they then, use sugar for that, by the way? Why? Because sugar surely converts into ethanol much faster. It's probably well, the only use for it. Yeah, the, the, there is. I mean, in Brazil, uh, they produce a lot of ethanol from sugar, but it, you know, the United States doesn't have the capacity to grow lots of sugar. That's the wrong climate. Um, okay. You know, they grow sugar in down in the in the south southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, but not much, you know, uh, in Florida and down there, you can get some, some sugar cane, but in, you know, the vast majority of their country is the Midwest, which uh, is producing, uh, their grains and their, and their, you know, they can't produce sugar cane there, but most of the sugar in America. So once again, back to processed foods and industrializing, etc., is corn syrup. Yes. Um, you know, and I mean, there was a, I grew up on a sugar farm, um, and, uh, I come you know, from that background. It was a massive blow for the world sugarcane farmers when Coca-Cola changed its recipe to go from getting its sugar from sugarcane to getting its sugar from corn syrup. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, so corn syrup is is a massive. And if you go look on whether it's your cereal or whatever food you're eating out of a box rather than a whole food, go look at it and see how often you will find corn syrup as as a primary ingredient. Um, Sorry, or, I took you way off track there because you were about to talk about the the thirty percent of the grain goes okay, so to that, the, the next the next the next biggest use of maize is feeding cattle. Okay, um, and at the end of the day, it comes down to like fifteen percent of the American maize crop is left to making processed foods, and I say processed foods because. You can't eat it. It's not. It's not available as food to a human being without being processed, either through a cow, a pig, a chicken, or through a, a factory and a lab. Um, and uh, and all of that feed is then given to to those cattle. Now, cattle are not designed to eat grains. Cattle are designed to eat plant cellulose and break down plant cellulose in their phenomenally complex digestive system. Uh, using all the microbes, the same microbes that feed us are the microbes that feed the cattle. Um, but they can actually make food out of grass. We cannot make food out of grass. Um, they have a very uh, advanced gut that does that for them. And then we go along and for the last five months of a cow's life, we cram it um, with foods that is not designed to eat. And we put it in a in situation where it lives in its own fecal matter, um, and these animals get sick, and they have to be given regular antibiotics uh, in order to stop them from dying and not putting on weight while they're in that feedlot. Mm. Um, and so that's actually a sick animal that we're sending to slaughter. Yeah. Um, and the big things that change when we change from feeding a cow grass to feeding it grains and all of that process is the types of fats in the car. Now the massive problem for human beings is inflammation. If you look at our chronic diseases that 70 years ago didn't register on any hospital's death list and are now the primary causes of death in every single hospital in the modern world. Okay. So i.e. we have created these diseases as epidemics step-by-step with modern agriculture. And many of them relate back to inflammation and how the body reacts to inflammation. And we have it now again here in coronavirus. Um, You know, we all, people you interviewed two weeks ago or whenever it was. Talking about inflammation and how this inflammation and over-inflammation is causing problems for doctors trying to treat people with coronavirus. Um, And when it comes down to fats, I mean, the simplest version, there are lots of other more complicated ones, is, is the omega-3 and the omega-6s. Now, omega-3 reduces inflammation reaction. Omega-6 increases inflammation reaction. And the ratio should be 
like four to one or three to one or two to one around there. So more omega-6 in your body, but pretty close to omega-3. Now, if you're taking animals that are coming out of industrial feedlots, cattle, you're pushing this way up. You're getting figures, they range, but you know, 10 to 20 times rather than two to three times. Um, and so what we've done there is another example of how we use, we've changed food, we've interfered with biology and with nature, um, and we've made a food that makes us get more inflamed. Yeah. And this is exactly the same thing we've done with other processed foods and the pushing of, of refined carbohydrates also causes inflammation. Um, and if we could eat in such a way that we reduced inflammation, the impact that it would have on human health and human well-being, uh, and not just physical, mental well-being, and then the impact that we would have on, on our health bills of our countries um, would be phenomenal. Okay? And that's where we need to be moving. We need to be looking at food as medicine. Okay? And going, how, how should we be approaching our food? This is what the government should be asking these questions because at the end of the day, the government's carrying the can here. You know, you know they're subsidizing the agriculture that's screwing them on the other side, basically. <laughs> and, 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 and paying for the hospital bills at the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, and while I'm putting in my boot on industrial agriculture, just a little segue here, talking about paying on things. So, you know, at the moment, there's a big drive. You know, people are trying to get um, developing countries to adopt more and more uh, monocrop, row, row cropping, industrial agriculture, GMO, except GMO stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Stop from each farmer growing so many different things, get specialized, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. In a nutshell, they're trying to push them towards industrial farming. They're trying to push them towards the green revolution. But the green revolution, wherever it goes, just causes bankruptcy. Mm. Okay. Because what it if, requires... Can you just explain a little bit about the green revolution? Because I, I, don't, I don't know. What okay, that is. So the green revolution was when we invented fertilizer, basically. Okay. So we had this problem of, um, you know, farmers were not looking after their fields sufficiently. They weren't putting in enough green manure. They weren't grazing that with cattle and putting dung back into the fields. Um, and they were trying to get too many crops out of their fields. And the productivity was declining. And we first tried to solve that by shipping in guano, bird guano from every island around the world into Europe. And then that started to drop off supply and not really become a viable option anymore. Uh, and then uh, Harbour and Bosch invented um, this process of making, or, or they invented it for gunpowder, um, but they could fix, they could get nitrogen out of the atmosphere, it's stuck together two molecules like this and split them and then make them available. Okay, so we could produce synthetic nitrogen to feed plants. And this began the industrial revolution where we could farm badly and just pour on nitrogen, okay, which was a fossil fuel derived entity, um, which was cheap. You know, fuel, fossil fuels have always been very cheap because we've never ever paid the full cost for them. The whole damage that they do as we use them, that bill just gets kicked on to our grandchildren. You know, every generation is yeah. done. They've never paid for it. And that's what makes fossil fuels cheap. Fossil fuels aren't cheap. They're very expensive. They carry this big tag called climate change on their back. And um, so we, we, we use that and we made this way of making cheap energy and cheap food. Um, and we then, that was the green revolution, that we could now make so much food, uh, hunger would never be a problem again. Yeah, we okay. immediately caused problems and and changed things and resulted in that crazy situation, as I said earlier, where 15% of the American maize crop is going to make food for people. The rest is going into some other industrial process. So, um, and so, how does this? How does the green revolution cause bankruptcy? Because you have to spend a huge amount of money on inputs, and if you're a small farmer, you don't have money. Okay, right. so I mean. The worst example is in India, okay? So they, they managed to convince large parts of India to change to growing GMO cotton. You can't grow GMO crops without um, lots of 
inputs. Okay, first yeah. they need the fertilizer, they need the sprays, the chemicals to protect them. Okay, because you, you basically mess with the, the biology of, of an environment so badly when you go to a monocrop, um, you know, that it just, you, you, cre you create the perfect breeding ground for the pests that are eating, living off that monocrop. Um, and, uh, you know, there've been scores of suicides across the, um, the Indian, small Indian cotton farming industry because these people have been driven into bankruptcy by having to go this route. And because there's so many extra costs, so many of them externalized, you can only do this stuff if you have large government backing. Okay, so you look at the who the the citadels of of the green revolution and industrial agriculture, the United States or North America, and Europe. Okay, and if you add up all the different kinds of subsidies and supports and whatever that the government gets involved in, it comes to something like a hundred billion dollars a year. Okay, between the farmers of those two continents being supported to produce their environment destroying food. And in my opinion, the health crisis creating food, a hundred billion dollars a year. Okay. Now you come along and you get all these foundations coming along and promoting in Malawi and in various countries in Southeast Asia that they must change to farming this stuff in a way that only makes sense if you've got a hundred billion dollars pumping in from the government. Yeah, if you're being subsidized. Um, and, and you know, there's no one being subsidized in Malawi. Um, and so it's it's not working, uh, and it just leads to people losing their farms, becoming bankrupt, and that all leads to suicides. You know, it's happening in the United States. You know, the, the stats are each year. It varies a little bit, but the average farmer in America is going to make a thousand dollars profit a year. The average farmer. That means more than half of them are making a loss that year. Okay, and the only reason they survive is because of government subsidies. Government pay you up to zero okay so every year you make food you do your job as a farmer and then you get paid to zero so basically you went nowhere um That's and insane. Uh, that is insane i did not know that it is, it is insane and it, it's it's terrifying it's not just insane it's terrifying <laughs> wow Wow. Okay. So, so that's, um, I mean, we started off on grass fed versus grain fed, but that got deep. So, um, just a little, <laughs> you know, so, so the chef's argument on, um, on grain fed versus grass fed slightly different. Uh, and, and I say the chefs. So when I say chef, I mean like flavor argument because grass fed has much better flavor, but, mm -hmm. uh, but less fat typically. And, and it's slightly tougher and it's not that it's tougher. It's just less marbled. So, and then, and then grain fed, uh, did I say grass fed? I meant grass fed about the previous one. Yeah. And then grain fed is typically much easier to marble. Um, but the flavor is obviously a lot milder. And like the classic example is is Wagyu. And I know that Wagyu is obviously genetic. Um, it's a genetic variety that accumulates more fat. But, you know, the way that they do it is they give it everything that makes it fat to make it even more in more fat. And and so just like the short version of grass-fed versus grain-fed from an environmental perspective, you're saying that grain-fed is like the, the devil. Well... I mean, grain-fed is, is, is one of the devils. <laughs> um, you know, conventionally raised beef, as opposed to regeneratively raised beef, is also quite environmentally damaging. You know, it, uh, it causes a lot of erosion. It causes um, a lot of uh, carbon to be released into the atmosphere. Um, uh, you know, as opposed to if you have planned grazing um, and you you run a farm you know a farm you know historically people would say i'm a beef farmer you know then the more enlightened people started to say i'm a grass farmer mm -hmm. you know the beef is a byproduct of producing grass because if i don't produce good grass and then now the the even more enlightened are going no i'm a soil farmer i'm farming the biology in the soil and i get right. my soil biology right that fixes my grass and then i get great quality beef and, it. and I have a huge environmental ticket that goes with it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so, it's, it's, you know, most cattle are still produced by conventional farming, not by, yeah. not by 
uh, regenerative farming. And in, in a country like South Africa, of commercial beef, I mean, you know, there's a huge uh, non-commercial herd in South Africa, uh, cattle in tribal areas. Um, and so this conversation excludes all of them because they don't end up in a feedlot and they don't end up... Uh, but of, the, of the, the cattle that are farmed commercially, 95% end up in a feedlot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That feedlot has, on top of the farming method that, with which the animals were raised, has its own environmental crisis problem. Um, and part of that, which is ignored, is, is the human health in, impact. Mm. Yeah, and the fat is very different. You can actually tell, you know, before cooking, if you, you're yeah. presented with the fat will be yellow in a grass-fed animal because it's full of keratin. Okay. Yes. Um, the, the fat in a beef in a grain-fed animal will be white, um, and there is a lot more marbling. And, and marbling is simply fat that has gone into the muscle. Mm. Um, so it's know, like so a slightly more sick, slightly sicker. It's more. It's more obese. <laughs> it's more it's obese. It's in, It's entirely obese. You're eating the beef animal. <laughs> So and and so I always laugh because um, there's the sun at, in in this. I, I go to Betty's Bay, you know, which is you know just down the road. We go there on holiday, and in and in Claremont, there's a there's a biltong shop there, and it's got this massive sign out front that just says "Heel Fet Biltong." <laughs> it's like, and that's like their main calling card. It's like you come here, you get yeah. real real beef. But let's let's talk about the consumer side because you know everyone watching this is like, "Cool, this is great, the best way to farm," but but we know how to buy like grass-fed beef. I know there are a few outlets in Cape Town, like Frankie Fenner, that sell grass-fed. And basically, you know, I, I'm going to have this conversation, but I'm going to do a garlic uh, demonstration later where I'm showing people how to roast garlic. I'm going to go to pick and yeah. pay and buy roast garlic, buy garlic to roast. So, so like, how do we get how do we get this stuff? And I know that you've got a project you mentioned earlier that you're working on, but like, how does a consumer buy instead of organic and grass-fed? How do they buy regenerative? It's difficult um, and you have to work hard at it and you've got to uh, be aware of what's going on and you've got to try hard and hence hence the food clubs uh, that have evolved already and the further food clubs we wish to evolve because we're all trapped just like the beef farmer you know if 95% of the beef are going through the feedlots you really don't have much choice but to send your beautifully raised beef to the feedlot because um, there's only 5% left and how do you access that 5% market? And just on the other side of that, you're the consumer. Um, where do you find that 5% and who's it going to and how, how is it being accessed? It's very difficult. Um, and we need to work at this together. If this is a, this is a project under creation. Um, and this is part of the, our, our food club is that together we want to build an alternative food chain a food chain that focuses on health of the people eating it and focuses on the environment. Um, and those two issues enables people, as you say, people say, how can I live regeneratively? Actually quite hard um, because there are very few producers and they're not in the mainstream. Like the 95% of the meat, you know, Woolworths, Checkers, Pick and Pay, Spa, those main avenues of food and food distribution are, are not involved in this. Um, and they're not going to become involved in this until there's consumer pressure. Um, and part of what we want to do via our, our food clubs is create that consumer pressure, create pressure that, that these bigger old fashioned retailers think, Oh, we have to change also because ultimately our goal is that we don't just want people who can, afford this high-end meat to be eating regeneratively. We want everyone to be eating regeneratively and we want South Africa's entire maize crop to be produced regeneratively. Yeah. And it can, you know, it just, there need to be some changes and we've got to make those changes. And so, so we have to sell to consumers that they must be part of this thing. And so, you know, if I look at my journey, I started off, the first thing I could get was some regenerative beef from Farmer Angus because I knew him anyway. Um, and then I found out about the food club, so I can add that to my offering. Then I found out about eggs, um, and I can add those to, my, to what I'm getting, and then slowly start to increase. The hardest, of course, is your, your perishables, your, your, your vegetables, etc., because the vast majority of, of market gardening in South Africa is not done in 
an organic regenerative way. Um, and, and, uh, sorry? sorry. So, 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 okay. So Farmer Angus is like one of the brands that we can trust. Um, but you said something very interesting now about regenerative versus organic. So, so organic, you know, organic is, is this thing, this like gold standard that everyone aspires to, but, but like you're saying that regenerative well, is not in my, in my opinion, my opinion, it used to be the gold standard. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has downgraded it to such a degree to to m make it mainstream, uh, or under pressure from you know all the the, the industrial agriculture companies that also do uh, organic farming in order to get some of that higher price market. Um, that it's it, it it's it's hardly organic anymore. But let's forget about that part of it. Let's go to the stuff that really is organic. Okay. Um, you know, you, you can use sprays and things in, in USDA approved organic. It's, it's, it's hardly organic. Um, but um, let's go to other certifications that are. The big problem is, is, is they allow tilling. Okay. Mm -hmm. you're, allowed to, you're allowed to turn the soil in order to control weeds. And they have to rely, these big uh, organic producers rely heavily on this they can't spray weedicides to control the weeds but the problem is is like first rule of regenerative first principle of regenerative agriculture is do not disturb the soil mm. you know if if i go drive a big dc10 tractor through your house you know every couple of months you're not going to be living happily <laughs> and that's what we do when we plow until we drive a big tractor through the house of the soil biology Mm. Um, and so regenerative is basically organic in the old-fashioned sense, not the USDA sense. But the prime goal is to grow your soil. You've got to protect your soil. So it's organic with a soil protection criteria. Right. Um, and, you know, I sometimes say this, that had, had organic not been hijacked by commercial interests, we, we really wouldn't know what regenerative agriculture is. wouldn't exist because organic would have done the job. But organic was hijacked by commercial interests. Um, okay. and, and, and then it, it, it was about getting food to the consumer that doesn't have this and it doesn't have this and it doesn't have this and it doesn't have this in it. There was no consideration given to the environmental impact of producing that food. Hmm. And it was degenerating the soil. And that's why you'll see these studies that are, uh, you know, get such widespread uh, publicity because the industrial agriculture people are spreading them, saying that organic is as bad as, as industrial when it comes to carbon and these issues. It is because they're plowing the smithereens out of the fields. They're tilling them. And then they're tilling them again when the crop's growing to kill the weeds growing between them. Um, and so regenerative is really organic with an environmental protection attached to it. Um, and the whole aim is that, you know, if you look at, at any natural system, it's either regenerating or it's degenerating. Okay. Um, and we want a natural system. We want, a, we want food produced naturally that comes with its full quotient of, uh, quotient of nutrition and with no harmful substances in it. Okay. Now, in order to do that, we've got to look after our soil. We've got to look after the nature and make sure it regenerates and keeps regenerating. Um, as soon as you stop doing that and you break those principles, it starts to degenerate. Um, and that's that's really the the organic thing. And organic got hijacked. Yeah, got um, it. So so now the so you're launching this tech startup basically in a couple in a couple of weeks time so i'm very excited about by the way like take, yeah. take me, basically send me i'm in okay, okay and, right. and so you know the food club idea is, is awesome and and like you said there are 15 food clubs and so just tell us a little bit about the 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 tech like what people will be able to do and what consumers how consumers will be able to interact with their um, food club owners because you know your market's the food club owners and then their market is the end users is that right yeah, so if you think about it, if you want to start something new, a new food chain, you've got to 
got to work out how you're going to get your consumers. Okay. Now I can start an online shop, but there's so many of those already. Um, I'm not going to get that. Okay. And there's so much competition and, and all the main um, supermarkets are now online anyway. Okay. And so we want a person to person marketing strategy. Okay. So we want to find somebody at a church or at a school or at some club that is, has a special interest in food. Okay. And generally the people who start these clubs, some family member got sick um, and had some, some disease and they got fixed by changing their diet. Okay. Or their health improved by changing their diet. Um, And these people develop an special interest in food Um, and, and understand the concept of food as medicine. And so they're prepared to put in the legwork to find the food of medicine, the rare stuff that we have at this situation in our life and we want to change it to being everywhere. Um, and so you get that person to form the food club and get in their group of people to source through that food club. Um, right. And then our whole web application is about making it as easy as possible for John O'Proudfoot to start a food club. And the first thing is giving you access to the existing producers. Um, and we hope that as we, you know, we get a, say a food, somebody phones us from Caledon and says they want to start a food club in Caledon. We hope that they can introduce us to more producers. And we right. build this, we build this society, this group of people, one farmer, one food club at a time. And we build it and we build it together and we make it, into a real player and that we can we can change the food system because you can't take the existing food system and try to tweak it and we you've got to jump you know you've got to go from from using fax machines to using email you know it's it's it's, it's you can't try and tweak a fax machine until it gets as good as an email it's never going to get there you've got to just jump jump tracks okay and you want to jump tracks onto a healthy environmentally f- friendly food system yeah food chain well, um, and so the first step that are if you you sign in as, as club leader um, and you can see the full range of products available and you can select to create your own mini website uh, of Jono's Food Club and these are the products that I think that my group of people are going to buy through them, through the club. Then you can send the link that you've now created for your mini website to your 15 people or 20 people or whatever it is saying yeah guys here's how we can you can source the food and how the prices and it all gets maintained in one place and you don't have to manage that now just think about doing that yourself right now yeah i mean I'm definitely, I'm definitely doing it but i think i might have more than 15 people um no sure <laughs> you, you 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 make a and have to make an excel spreadsheet put all the information on that excel spreadsheet yeah, send it to yeah. people it's, it's, it's a huge amount of work and confusion behind that. Mm. Then each member can go on and just like they would if they were at take a lot, tick what they want, what quantities they want, um, and, and then send that through to you. And then you can collate it all. And later on, the system will do this. But right in the beginning stages, you will still be a bit more hands-on involved uh, and send the orders through to the farmers. The farmers then deliver to you and your members come and collect from you. Um, and and then it gets distributed. And, you know, that way we can find the people who are interested in food and interested in food as health and get them to to build this with us. Like, I mean, that, that's, that's really the most exciting part of it is that, you know, and, and I think we discussed this offline, or maybe I mentioned it already, but the cauliflower thing, you know, like consumers really yeah. do vote best with their wallets you know and if if consumers drive it by just demanding what they want everything else has to has to satisfy their demand and that's just the nature of yeah. economics you know so so this is super cool i'm really excited and um and i think we'll we'll end it on that note andrew okay. it's been it's been amazing having you on the on the show and and sharing all of your wisdom uh, last thing is where do we find out you know when you launch this this app how do we find out about it like is there a website we can go and like pre-book or pre-order um we yeah i mean we'll, we'll be coming to you <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, you're on our list um 
And uh, we, yeah, we'll be using, uh, on, on, you can join up as a member, as a concerned consumer on, on the regenagsa.org.za website. Um, okay. you know, one of the criteria we have there as, as, a, as a member, it's free membership, um, is, is concerned consumer. Um, you know, they're producers, they're academics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, you, so you can join up there. Um, you can join up on our Facebook group, um, which has the advantage of you'll get lots of interesting articles and, and videos shared from all around the world about regenerative agriculture. Um, and um, yeah, so we'll be using those channels to, to start with. Uh, we've already had contact with a number of people. I mean, you know, we, we who are very keen to to get involved in this, um, and and we're going to grow from there. We're going to start here in the Western Cape because we already have the infrastructure of our own club to to work off the back of. Mm. Um, and yeah, as I said, our hope is that there are lots of little farmers out there who are half regenerative, quarter regenerative, and if we can get together with them and link them up with consumers, we can make them fully regenerative. That's very exciting. Yeah, I'm very excited about all of this. So yeah, thanks very much for, for coming and giving us your time to share. And uh, and we will definitely be having you back. Will it, maybe Good. you can be a guest on the show when I launch my food club. It's the most exciting Excellent. thing. Okay, <laughs> thanks, Andrew. Okay, Take it easy. Cheers. Thank you, bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to join the Supper Heroes community, please get onto Facebook and join the Facebook group. That is the Supper Heroes Facebook group. For more information on me, follow me on Facebook, the John O'Proudfoot. Follow me on Instagram at John O'Proudfoot. Check out my website, www.johnoproudfoot.com. And if you're interested in taking my online keto course or getting online keto coaching, check out realmealrevolution.com. Please follow and download. We're out to change the world and you can be a part of it. See you next week.